You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Well, good afternoon. This is John Corr and C.L. Mitchell, and we wish you a pleasant and happy new year. It's good to be back in the studio after uh, a little holiday break. And uh, um, how was your new year, Reverend? You know, my, my new year was actually um, very good. Um, I, I took the old man scenario and literally slept through the countdown. Oh, really? You, yeah. Did you like put it on channel uh, like, you know, 10 o'clock at night and just watch the East, East Coast uh, welcome the new year and just go to sleep? Or uh, my, my daughter joined me in, in slumber whilst my son and my beautiful wife actually turned the channel and joined the countdown in New York in Times Square. And I woke up thereafter. So I totally missed it. Do you, it's amazing how, how much goes into the celebration <clears throat> of one second. One, one click of a clock, <laughs> every anticipate, anticipation for and celebration for just one moment of time, and then it's, okay, we're here. You know, I hadn't thought about that. That's, <laughs> that's both exciting and depressing. Which is why I think time. when you're younger, you, you get more excited, but when, as you get older, you're like, okay, we've been there before. But <laughs> Yeah, well, as you get older, then you think, how many more times will I be there? That's true, right? that's true. So there's a gratitude. You know, just an interesting little, little scenario. You and I both know that um, the term, January uh, comes from uh, a term, a an actual uh, pagan god concept. Yes, and um, it also is a literary grammatical term. Uh, it comes from a god who was deemed Janus. Yes, uh, and uh, he had two heads: one that looked back and right. one that looked forward. Right, and so that was adopted on a paganistic scale for the calendar and for the days of the month, so that the idea was a pivot or a transition of sorts, so that January really serves to look back and forward. And what you oft find is individuals who only want to look forward and not look back. But it's really important that we be um, connoisseurs of history in order to be responsible over the present and over the future. That's a great segue. <laughs> well, we're, gonna, we're going to, uh, we had uh, taken a couple weeks off, uh, well not off, but uh, we started a discussion on the incarnation uh, during the time of Christmas. And we're going to go back to history and go back to um, the Book of Ruth is where we were at before. And we want to continue that discussion because um, it is part of history. It's part of uh, salvation history. Uh, has Indeed. a very important uh, place in the history of, of, of the church and the history of Judaism and and uh, this character, uh, Ruth, and the character Boaz and the other ones in this story uh, play pivotal, pivotal Pivotal. 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 <laughs> you know, it's it's I still <laughs> it's it's still it's still early in the year. So, pivotal uh, place in our history uh, as Christians in uh, salvation history. Of course, uh, Ruth being the ancestor of David, who's of course the ancestor of Jesus. So, uh, we want to learn from her history and learn uh, of her character. Um, since it's been a while uh, since we've been in the book. Uh, rather than just kind of jumping right in, let's just kind of give a little synopsis. We want to, we do want to sort of uh, go into chapter two, uh, but maybe just get a little synopsis of 
of what the book is about and uh, and pick it up from there. Maybe a little brief and if brevity, if, if that's in your character. On, You're maybe. asking the wrong person. You should take that. <laughs> okay. <one job. laughs> well, well you, you do have in the book of Ruth, you do have, it's a story of a family uh, during uh, a very difficult time in Israel's history, the time of the judges, a uh, particular family, uh, the family of Elimelech, uh, who has to, in one sense, flee from the land because the land is not producing, something is going wrong, uh, something has gone wrong. And so this family decides to leave in the time of famine. Um, within a few short verses in, in, in the first chapter, uh, tragedy strikes this family. Uh, Elimelech dies, uh, and then... Um, Machlan and Machlan Kilian. and Kilian, the, the, the sons actually marry. They, they, they're there long enough to marry, but then they die. So you're left with the mom, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, who then have to fend for themselves because now they're all, the, all the men are dying. Um, and at some point, they have to go back because they hear that God has visited his people back in, in Bethlehem, back in Israel, back in Judah specifically. Now, it's, that period has taken 10 years. That period has taken 10 years. So it'll take you three seconds to read a few verses, but over 10 years of time, there's been tragedy. So they go back. Um, and, of course, when they go back, uh, Naomi tr- tries to discourage her daughters-in-law from coming back because they have nothing to go back to. Um, there's no guarantee of, of any future for them, actually. Um, Orpah goes back to her family back in Moab, and Ruth decides to cling and stay with with Naomi, um, and expresses a, a, a very famous uh, expression of devotion that we hear at a lot of weddings, uh, where you go, I will go. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, your God will be my God, <coughs> and so she uh, expresses this this devotion to Naomi, and when she goes back, the townspeople are of course are surprised to see Naomi. Perhaps she's aged. Perhaps she's you know, the the appearance that she, you know, the shock of seeing her again. And in the story, um, she is um, she's kind of she expresses herself as being one who's very bitter because she is seeing her the things in her life as being from God. She's being punished or whatever. She's not a very happy person at this point because she's lived through a lot of tragedy. She's hurt. She is hurt. That is how uh, basically how chapter one basically ends, and in, but at the end of chapter one, it it gives it a little glimmer of hope because it says they come back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, up to this point, everything's been lacking, everything's been taken away, but there's some good news on the scene in in the first section of uh, or the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, and it is now in chapter two that we will begin to meet a new character. His name is Boaz. Mm-hmm. And he is his. He plays a very pivotal role. Again, I'm mispronouncing that word. I it's, don't know what it is. It's January. It's our Monday. It's, it's Monday. Okay. It's our it's Monday. January. Okay. Yes. Boaz plays a very pivotal role. Pivotal, right? How would pivotal. You say, a pivotal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Maybe it was the Starbucks today, but he plays a very uh, um, essential essential role. Thank you, <laughs> Mr. Thesaurus, in the story. And so let's just, let me just read a little bit here. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, there's a hint there. There's a tie back to the first few verses of Elimelech, where the, the narrator hasn't forgot about Elimelech. Um, so he's reminding us, okay, there's something with Elimelech there. 
and uh, his name was Bo- was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And it's interesting, the text also highlights the fact that she is from Moab. We already know she's from Moab. But the, the, te- the narrator seems to want to repeat this fact. In fact, he's not going to stop repeating it for a couple more times. Highlighting some tension there. Yes. Um, the, the, this, this person from the family of the Lamech who's, who's, who's uh, um, introduced as Boaz, and Ruth is Moabitess, who wants to go out and glean to the fields uh, in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her daughter, go, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of who? Elimelech, again, the narrator is again drawing our attention to this family, hinting at something that's going on to uh, address the, the issue that has happened so far. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And he said, and they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants, who was in char- who said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and, and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And thus she, has co- she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from the serv- from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, "I I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Actually, let me read it to verse 7, 16. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread, and deep dip your uh, piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. And when she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. And also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Let's stop there because that's the end really of the first scene in this chapter. This chapter really has two scenes um, between Boaz and Ruth and then uh, Ruth and Naomi when she goes back to, to tell her what's going on. Yes, it's it's going to be an interesting scenario because what you'll have is you'll have first of all the scene betwixt uh, 
<clears throat> Naomi and Ruth, and then you'll have a transition uh, where the scene transitions betwixt Boaz and Ruth, and then you'll have a scene where it again transitions back to uh, Ruth and Naomi. And I deliberately um, interchange the names because whereas first Ruth says, allow me to go work, and you see kind of... Um, um, uh, her mother-in-law having the authority role, uh, then what you'll see is Boaz having the emphasis and authority role. Right. And then you'll see uh, that Naomi is really waiting to hear um, uh, Ruth's account. And so you're going to have kind of a transition of sort. Now, what's, what's interesting, and obviously I just read the first you know several verses of this chapter, we have a new character on the scene. Of course, after the fact, we're looking back and we know what's going to happen, right? But what's interesting is that is that you have the the narrator, the the writer of the text, which uh, we don't know who the writer was. There's speculation on different authors, but the, he is he is purposely he's he is he is actually um, uh, sort of behind the scenes, but knowing sort of hinting at the actions of God in this text. God is sort of sort of silent, but yet you see the the people and and, and the pieces move in the right place and right time. Uh, when he says, um, uh, and then she happened to come to his field, and oh, and by the way, it's it's the beginning of the barley harvest, and she had a, a, a relative named Boaz, and and Boaz who who oh look here he is, he just happens to come right now, verse four, from Bethlehem to this field at the same time that Ruth is there. You see things moving behind the scenes. There is an interesting, I'm glad you said that, John, um, because you make a perfect point. There is an interesting parallel um, betwixt the nature of this book stylistically and the nature of the book of Esther. Now, now you see the name of I Am mentioned in this book, whereas you will not essentially see the name right. of I Am um, uh, uh, in the book of Esther proper. Uh, as one particular scholar has said, uh, what you see in the book of Esther is you see the invisible God with his, glove, in, with his hands in the gloves of circumstances moving the parties about as though they were in a dollhouse. So right. he is the unseen mover in in the screen, right. um, in in the in the play or in the narrative, whereas in this particular book, you actually see the name of I am mentioned, and you see his involvement. But there is a similarity, right, of right. sorts, and yes. I think that's what you're getting at is yes. the similarity. I want to point out a textual critical issue uh, here that we'll actually appreciate later on, but right now it may not necessarily be obvious to the reader. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, um, if you look at the uh, text in the Hebrew, you have um, Ulan. Yeah, yeah, and if you're at home. Turn to your Hebrew text. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give me a few minutes to get that one out. <laughs> see, happy new year. <laughs> you see, Ul Naomi, and then the second word in this particular text is either uh, Mayoida or it's Moda. Right. Now, now that's important because if it is the one, Mayoda, then it is, he is a um, a, an acquaintance or a friend. If he's is a Moda. The, is that Kativ reading or the Karyat? It's the Kativ reading. Okay. Right. And and so, uh, the, the text seems to, there's a textual variant that may suggest he's a close relative, right? Or he's a he's an acquaintance, a friend, a more distant relative. Okay, let's just pause right here. The Kathiv reading is actual what's actually written in the text. Correct. The 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 um, uh, the um, oral reading, the curate reading, is what they would have read. Correct. Okay, to correct that. So you have two. What you're saying is a variance. One says he was a, an acquaintance, but another one, how it's read, is he's a close 
relative. Right. Okay. It, there's an assumption or a presumption or presupposition placed on the text. Okay, so, In other words, this is how it would have been understood. So why bring that up? I bring that up because what we're going to see um, is is later on we'll go into the Deuteronomic text and we'll go into the Leviticus text, right? All under the penmanship of Moses. And and what it has been assumed is, uh, in fact, he is the kinsman redeemer, as it were. Right. Um, he is the goel. But actually, uh, what we will go and look at is he's not certainly by the text as the text will later evidence he's not the closest relative right what's more what we'll look at is he doesn't necessarily strictly follow the kinsman redeemer responsibilities he's going to do a lot more go above and beyond which by the way it would suggest this is not his main responsibility he does not in fact to do have to do this he's operating by a deep level of chesed right. or of love or right. of of fidelity as it were and we're going to translate that different than love. So, so are you going to are you going to take the the tradition are you going to take the um, the textual reading over the oral tradition reading or what how are you going to approach it? What I'm going to suggest is he's not as close of a relative. He's more of an acquaintance slash friend who is in fact related, which is is certainly Well, he's obviously related. Absolutely. The, 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 he's he's a relative. Yes. We don't know how close. But it speaks volumes then. Of his character. Of his character. If he is not the one who's really, which we'll see in the text, if he is really not the one who's obligated to do what the Redeemer is supposed to do, and we have to define that, the Goel, the Redeemer, what does that person do? That person, well, hold on, we'll get back in a second. It speaks volumes to the fact that he is not the one who's obligated, and he's not the next next in line, that he actually does this and and takes on a role that he doesn't have to take on. And does the redemption of of the uh, of the property and of and of uh, Ruth and, and Naomi um, that he doesn't have to do? So it speaks volumes of his character. Well, either way you read it, even if you read it as as he is a close relative, he still isn't the closest relative. Correct. So either way, you still get Boaz as a person who goes beyond what he's supposed to do. He goes. He's he's someone who does what. Um, even those who are supposed to do it are unwilling to do. Yes. He is the one who uh, doesn't, he, he says, I, I'm not, I don't have to do this, but I decided to do this because it's the right thing to do. It's, yes. the, it's the good thing to do. That's the kind of person he is. And, and in so doing, um, he does something quite righteous. Right. Um, and his character, of course, is hinted at in the text here. Um, he's known as a Gibor Hayil. Um, uh, uh, you can translate that st- several ways. In the book of Judges, right. it's translated as uh, a man of valor. Right. Um, uh, here, of course, it's translated, um, and I'm reading the NASB 95 update edition, right? And so uh, here it has translated it as a man of great wealth. And I think that the latter, uh, as the NASB chooses to translate it, is probably the more correct translation because really what's being hinted at is he's a powerful man with wealth and high social standing. Yeah, and you can also, because he's not the only one in the story with a man of great wealth, the one who's closer. Uh, the closest relative is also rich as well, but I think there's another way you can translate or you can add to that is 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 someone who's very uh, noble in character, indeed, and noble in character, which actually ties into Ruth, Ruth, and 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 what's described as as her. So here here you have this one who's who's obviously he's he's noble in character, 
he is a man of of some wealth because he has some but he has a field or a portion of a field that he has workers at and he is able and willing to redeem her well there's an interesting um grammatical linguistic and thematic tie-in here, right? Uh, the author, uh, both the Holy Spirit and the human author, is tying something together for us. And what he's tying together for us, uh, you can see within the framework of the text, because as you said, which is the third possible translation, which I also think is a shade of meaning, and in fact is going to become more of a visible shade of meaning as we go on, is in fact the nobility of his character, right? Right. A man of nobility. And here's the deliberate intention of the dual authors, as it were, both divine and human. Right. Um, he is referred to as a gebor chayi. Right. But she is referred to by him as an eshet chayi. Yeah, yeah. So she is a woman of noble character, like the Proverbs 31 phrase, right? right? He is a man of noble character. Right. Now, here's the tie-in. What you have is you have both of these individuals coming from different circumstances, right. different backgrounds. Yes. In fact, in chapter two, as she's introduced, she's introduced as a Moabitess. Right. But what we will see is the story is not simply about Ruth, right. but the story is also about Boaz. It's about two people who, by the grace and efficacy of the work of the Holy Spirit operable upon their lives and, um, test and, and, and seen or manifest, made manifest in their lives, two individuals who have strength of character. They may not have equal finances. They may not have equal societal uh, standing. They right. may not have equal recognition in a societal framework, but they are two people of noble character. I think it's interesting is that he does not refer to her as a Moabitess, and he doesn't treat her as such. I think when you read the text and you get the the, the um, a little bit deeper in the Hebrew, when he talks to his um, his foreman, so to speak, mm-hmm. and he tells how she came and wants to glean and she's taking a break, you get the sort of sense that He's not real nice about it. He's okay about it. She's, she's Moabitess. But when he turns, when, when Boaz himself turns and, and talks to her, you get a sense of very, that, he, uh, that he's very soft to her and very tender to her. And though she is a foreigner and she's, she is not on the same status as him, uh, whether ethnically or, 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 not, or social, social, economically, or, um, social, Social, help me out with my socially and economically. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's going on today, but my mouth is not working. He treats her with respect, indeed. And I think he does not talk down to her. I think there's a reason why that springs back to his pedigree or his genealogy, and we'll talk about it. He doesn't say, Oh, you're one of the workers. Well, I am the owner of this field. In fact, my name is Boaz, and uh, you know, I see you. You know, he doesn't have that approach. In fact, he He's very kind to her in, in what he says and what he does to her. That speaks volumes of the kind of person he is because he doesn't think of himself as better than somebody else. And that's hugely important because if you have that kind of attitude, you, you cannot be the, the um, what's the word, the Gabor Hayil. Correct. You cannot be a, a, a man of great character and great nobility and have uh, an attitude that you are better than other people. Well, John, in in um, ancient Near Eastern times, as you know, yes. <clears throat> they did not just simply give names, right? Names were not given haphazardly right. or inconsequentially, but names were given to depict 
character that they either anticipated that the child yes. would have or character that was visible. For instance, they call the child Yaakov or Jacob. Why? Because right. he is supplanting. He's already grabbing at his older brother's heel, right? right? right. Uh, in other words, he has indicated uh, his character. And in fact, true to form, he would indicate that character throughout most of his life. But what you see here is even in this man's name, yes, Boaz, Boaz, means in him is strength, right? right? And, and, and by the way, there is a, an example of this in the building of the Solomonic Temple. Right, the, the pillars. Because the two pillars yes. that hold up a segment of the architect and uh, the architecture and structure of the temple um, in, in the, uh, uh, in the uh, earlier portion of it, right? right, right. Um, uh, one is called Yachin and, and one is called Boaz. Boaz. Yes. And, and so his, 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 his name is a word picture of a pillar or a man with characteristic strength or characterized by strength. So right. if you look at chapter two, what you see is this. You see he's a relative. We don't know how close, um, but he's not the closest relative. Right. And there is a hint by the author that there's some character in that as as it, and it's going to be depicted as we go on. What's more, we see that he is a Gibor Chayil. He's a man of, of wealth, yes, yes. Um, but he's also a man of noble character. And then, of course, um, we see that his name is Boaz, in him is strength. This is a, a means by which the author is literally giving us a repetition. This is three different ways of saying in the text, in, in some manner, this is a man of character. Right. This is a man of strength. This is a man of nobility. So what the reader of the ancient Near East should do and would have done is perk up and say, if all of these things in different ways are paralleling a statement of equivocation that is saying, this is a an, an astounding man. The reader then in, in our day should perk up and say, how is his strength going to be depicted? And right. indeed, we shall see that shortly. Well, th one thing to know as, as we've read this portion of the chapter, the, the thing that, that struck me as, as, um, as I'm reading this is his, he is, he is a, yes, a great man of character, but he is a man of great word. In other words, his words, he's very gracious in what he says. I mean, he comes on, he comes on the scene and greets his workers. Hey, may the Lord be with you. And they return the reply. May the Lord be with you. And you get the sense that, in fact, um, um, uh, you get the sense as you read further on, he's very gracious in not only what he does, but what he says. He's, he has, he has, um, his, his, the people who work for him speak very highly of him. Obviously, Ruth is going to speak very highly of, of what he says and, and, and offers to her as well. Um, this person of a great character isn't, isn't hiding behind a bush. He is, he's out there and his words are gracious. He is a gracious man. And I think what's interesting is that when, she, when Ruth tells Naomi uh, back in verse 2, she says, please let me go to, uh, to the field and glean. She is actually expressing sort of like, I, I think I'll go to the field. Or I, I, you know, I would like to, you know, there's a very strong desire, but at the same time, you know, looking to Naomi for, 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 direction. for direction. But then she says that, uh, that I uh, may go to the field and glean among the ear, ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor or grace. It's the Hebrew word hain. And that's exactly who, who who Boaz is. He is a man of grace, a man of, of favor. And what's interesting is that the narrator, as he brings into the story Boaz, not only does he fulfill the need 
of somebody within the family of Elimelech because he says that twice. He is from the family of Elimelech two times, right? Verse one and verse three. But then he also demonstrates that he's also a man of grace. So her desire is, her desire really first is, I want to go to a field where, where the man that can be kind to me. Because at that time, she was as a, as, as a woman in the time of Judges and as a, as a foreigner uh, where they, they may not have followed the law because the law basically provided for aliens and foreigners and for widows and whatnot. But she is asking God, really, or, or praying that, that she would go to a field where somebody can be honorable and gracious. And she gets that in Boaz and unbeknownst to her, at this time, she doesn't find out until she goes back to Naomi, and Naomi tells her, "Hey, this is Boaz. She's a rel- he's a relative." That 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 God directs her, and she finds a man of grace, a man of great character, who happens to be in her family as well, who happens to be in her in her husband or in her father-in-law's family, and so hinting to us who are reading this that God is doing more than what meets the eye. That, that what she thinks she needs in, in, in finding somebody or finding a field that, that can provide and they're not going to harass her or, or bother her is that God's also going to answer another need that, is, that has been hugely needed uh, since chapter one, and that is taking care of these women, taking care of, of the family of Elimelech. Which, which by the way necessitates a revisitation of chapter 1, verse number 6, and chapter 1, verse number 22, right? Because the pakad, the visitation of I am, is fuller in this text than just having visited the land of Bayit Lechem, the house of bread, right. with bread, right? right? He's going to visit in a fuller manner. And, and I just want to pause there and say, oft when we pray... <clears throat> We thank God for the prayers he doesn't answer, Yeah, but we thank him for the prayers he does answer. But he, we also thank him for answering, not according to our words, not even according to our thoughts, but omnisciently according to our needs. Yeah, but isn't that interesting about the Lord? It's just, this kind of ties into really the way the Lord is and the rest of scripture as well, is that he answers your cry for, for help he answers your cry for uh, for meeting your needs, but he also does a whole lot more. Yes, he doesn't just stop at what what you think you need. You know, think about this: in in the time of Jesus, where they were looking for the Messiah, they thought they needed a certain type of Messiah, a right? military, a military deliverer, because the Romans were were in charge and they didn't like that. He goes beyond that. And just doesn't meet the need of somebody to deliver physically, though he demonstrates that in, in setting people you know, free from, from various uh, physical ailments, but spiritually as well. And provides somebody who's not just a, you know, a Messiah that can come in and deliver them, but the Son of God himself who forgives them and pays for the sin and does a whole lot more than expected. The point is that oftentimes when God answers prayer, there's a whole lot more going on, and there's there's it is it is uh, God's answers to prayer are, are often pregnant with more answer and 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 a supply of sorts that are beyond expectations, uh, things that um, that that did not enter your mind of, of what God is doing. Ruth here has no idea that this person is Boaz is not only going to be gracious to her, but is going to. Redeem her, redeem her mother-in-law, 
give her a child, and that child is going to be significant in the history of the entire world for the salvation of... of, of He's of, going to have cosmic significance. Cosmic significance. So th- my, my, my point is, is when God answers prayer or when God moves, it oftentimes has ripple effects that go beyond your wildest dreams. Well, there's the dual aspect of the, the answer of messiahship, as you pointed out. It, he is a warrior when he comes at first, right? But the armament... The, the battle array of the warrior in his first advent is that of a lamb. Yes. Because he has to fight the most significant war, the war against sin. Right. But his second battle armament is that of a lion. Right. Why? Because now he comes to glean the feel of the spoil of war. Right. He's already victorious. Right. But as you said, um, I, I am so grateful, and, and I want to pause right there just for a moment and say, Pray God that there will be some prayers that I will pray this year that I will pray in in, in utmost ignorance, John. Right, that's right, the truth. Because right. I think I know what I need, and I even think I know what I want. But God is infinitely wise. He, he won't answer those. He has a better answer to a different question. Right. And then there'll be prayers that I'll ask for. And the person of the Father knows what I need. But listen, he's not just that God. He's the God who gives you water with flavoring. It, it, it is funny. It just almost took the words out of my mouth because as 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 I'm thinking about um, the answer the answer to the request of the woman that says, "Well, sir, give me this give me this water." Mm. Remember, Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she fetches water that you drink, and you'll get thirsty. Get thirsty again. That's what he says to her. Hey, you drink of this water, this well water, and you'll get thirsty again. Oftentimes we're we're so busy asking for well water when Jesus wants to give us water that is overflowing to a point and eternal eternal and that's the kind that's the difference of perspective and now we're as as I'm saying innocent but unknowingly we we want to settle for the the, the pail of well water because we think that's that all we look for is satisfaction satisfaction of immediate needs immediate thirst. And God looks beyond the immediate thirst. He looks eternally to the thirst of the heart and the soul. And that's the kind of God he is. He is a God who, is, who, who, who gives and re- responds and gives. I mean, can you imagine if you were Abraham and, Abraham's, and God says to Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless the world. In fact, you can't count the number of sands or number of stars in the heavens. I'm going to use you. To do that, that that, and at this point he has no children. At this point, when he said, when he hears those promises, he has not one child, and yet God's somehow going to use him to do that. And of course, in Abraham's mind, immediately is later on. What about my son Ishmael? Well, what about this? You know, this my servant Eliezer. Eliezer, because God's promises. And his his promises to us have fulfillment that go far beyond our wildest imagination, and they all give glory to God. So sometimes we 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 look and we say, you know, what about this immediate need? And God has something in his in in his mind and God's thinking that goes that's so much more wonderful. Is that even a way of phrasing it? Much more wonderful than an immediate. Oh, here's your child right now. No, no. God often when He answers your prayers, when He answers your need has something far greater in mind that he wants to accomplish. John, what delights my soul is, 
Heaven with the person of Christ will be so much more than I deserve. Mm. It will be so much more than I've asked for. It will be so much more than I need. It'll even be more than I was even intelligent enough to want right. or to desire because he is the God, according to Ephesians, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Isn't, you know, it's, isn't as, as Lord willing, as we see the Lord in heaven, or as we consider the salvation that Christ paid for us, right? Mm. And, you, and you consider, first of all, salvation is received very humbly, Right. No, no one can, will go into heaven and says, "Well, I made it here because of what I did." No one, no, no one is. It's all going to be. It's all because of Christ. And I think of the, what the what the what Ruth responds to the kindness that Boaz says to her or, or gives. He says, "She says, verse ten. Why have I found? In fact, she falls to the ground on her face. And the word there for falling to the ground is the word for worship. Actually, it's mm-hmm. the Hebrew word for worship." Um, and she she fall, falls on her face to the bowing to the ground and said to him, "Why have I found favor or grace in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner?" That is the cry, really, of the of the believer, and that is the the humble response to the graciousness of God, the graciousness of, that the here we as as Gentiles or we as as believers who were we were a foreigner. We were trying to um, glean in the, in the in the fields of God, so to speak, and here God decides to come and and redeem us and show grace to us, and we know who we are. We know we don't deserve that. We we deserve to be you know out in the in the darkness, and yet this response that she has so pictures the response of the believer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yes. For theirs is the kingdom yes. of heaven. Yes. Um, if, if we look further in this text, by the way, may I just say on a personal note, I am so delighted, like <laughs> every fiber of my being from head to toe, just to be sitting back here with you and, and having theological contemplations and textual musings. This is, well, this well, is amazing. Well, betwixt you and me, you and I. <laughs> I feel I feel, I feel it's it's great to be uh, in exchanging um, to talk with you as well as, as well. <laughs> so, so if you go into verse number two, she says something interesting, and uh, some translations do not in fact translate this term, but I think it's important because in verse number two, and Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, uh, literally the particle na, she says please. Now some translations yes. will just say let me uh, go to the field. Yes. But what is uh, being said here in the, uh, um, the Masoretic text, which is very important, by the way, is this. It is a statement of submission. It is a statement of humility. It is a statement of alignment. By this very particle, nah, she is being true to the kind of humility and submission which she both stated and exhibited in chapter number one. Hmm. So she's not forcing herself. She's not trying to just make her own way, but she actually is keeping a consistency, a constancy, if you will, with the words that she said to her mother-in-law that I'm going to stick with you. Okay, so let's just bring this up real fast because this really ties in. If we said, and we haven't really explored all about Boaz and his character, mm-hmm. but if we said that he is a man of, 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 he's very gracious, 
And so far in this chapter, we've discussed how he's very gracious in his words. We can then also say that she is also very gracious, Ruth, in her actions. She is a woman of her, of her word that she said, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my, my, your God will be my God. Okay. She's now owning up to that. And her very actions speak large volumes in this chapter as well. You have a man of great, very great, you know, obviously Boaz is a man of gracious actions as well. But what's, I think what's highlighted here is, is the fact that she, he, he actually speaks more in this, in this chapter than she does. Uh, his, his speeches are longer. But she has the action. She goes out there. She doesn't come in and, and wait. She didn't come in into, into Bethlehem and sit on her hands and do nothing. She's a woman of action. She realizes if we, if, if, listen, my mother-in-law is getting older and I need to do something and I promised that I would be with her with the intent of doing that. And she does that. She does not wait for somebody else to do it for her. She, and no wonder she's, she is called the woman of, 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 of valor or, or the, actually, um, the noble woman. And which is tied to Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman is a woman of action as well. Correct. This highlights her character as well, is that she actually does things. And, and she's, um, she's a woman of action. And I love the fact that you have this marriage of the two, this grace, 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 grace in words and in action as well. Well, if you look at the text, John, she says, please look at her request, this, this request that she's making. She says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. Now, that just may seem like sentences to us, right? Right. But notice what she's asking. She's asking, would you please give me permission? I am humbly submitting myself to do hard work. Right. Oh, yeah. And this this is not something where she would go out and stand in a street corner and hand out. Oh no! This is where she's going to the field, and the the law prescribed that when you gleaned or when you harvested your fields, actually technically, the corners of the fields was two things. There's there's the corners of the field that was actually left and belonged technically to 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 those who need okay? to foreigners, to widows, to orphans. Right. Yes. Yeah. To the, the, the law prescribed that the corners of the field belonged to them. But then as you're gleaning your field, your people are gleaning, gleaning or are harvesting the field, you're going to miss a couple things. You're going to drop some, 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 those things that you dropped or missed were then allowed for the poor uh, to come in and, and gather for themselves. So, so it was there, the, the, heart, the field was there, but it was hard work. Indeed. This is this is this is hard work, and and she is obviously a strong woman because of how much uh, she gets from Boaz later on. Is it's probably like fifty to hundred pounds of worth of grain. Well, it's a five step process, right? Because right. you have the stalks, and you have to either pull them from the ground, right, or you use a sickle, right, cutting them as close as possible to the ground, and then of course you have to um, uh, pile them up. And then you have to tie them, the bundles of sheaves, and then you have to transport them through to the threshing floor and beat them out so that you separate the barley from the chaff or the wheat from the chaff. And you're doing this, by the way, in the sun. Right. And so so I think it's important. So you couldn't just go to Albertsons or Target and just buy the... Absolutely not. You had to go and... So what this woman is saying is not only a request um, that is submitted in humility 
and submitted in, in, in humble submission, but she's actually requesting uh, that she be allowed to go and do very hard industrious work on behalf of and for the care of her mother-in-law. Right. And she's not doing that work, by the way, absent of an awareness of the provision of God. There's practically a divine passive in this text right. because what you're looking at is Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field. We've said that involves five areas of very difficult work, right. by the way, for hours. For hours. Right. It's not just short because you're not only taking the corners of the field if you're responsible, but you're waiting for the workers to drop things right. and then you have to go about the task. Well, you have to, what you've gathered then is you have to make it useful. You got to get the grain out of that and get what's, what's useful out of that. It's not, it's not over, um, you know, you just don't pick it and, you know, it's not a drive through here. It's, it's, she's working very hard. All for not just her sake, but her mother-in-law's sake. And, and, and in that, She's not simply working hard, but look at the anticipation. After one in whose sight I might, I might find favor. The concept is, listen, um, I'm, I'm working hard with a trust that God is going to send someone who will be a clear expression right. of his favor toward me. Right. So it's not just that believers are not industrious. And it's not that believers are just hard workers right. or, or believers are just people of faith, but it is we work hard right. in faith. Right. We believe hard right. as we are laborious, right? right? So that God's provision, John, is oft seen for the believer whilst our backs are bent and our hands are hard at labor while we are fixed on the plow. Right. Our hands are fixed on the plow and our hearts are fixed upon God and hope. Both are important. It is a concursus within ourselves, as it were. Well, isn't, isn't that how God made us? Indeed. I mean, I mean, he designed work to be glorifying to him. It's a Genesis 1-2 reality. It's a Genesis 1-2. Obviously, Genesis 1-2 before the fall, there, you know, there was... You know, Adam is is in charge of taking care of, of the garden and of, har- and of harvesting or, you know, t- you know cultivating it. The, the idea of, of doing good work, you know, is obviously now there's, you know, after the fall, there's, of course, um, the curse on the ground that's affected, you know, things die. And it makes their work makes it thorny, hard. Yes. right? It but, makes the ground hard. But there's still something rewarding in doing that. There's still something that is is, is rewarding in, in doing, doing work, and it's glorifying to God. It's a good thing, you know? And here's here God. See, see, I think sometimes we we think that we think that God has to always answer and do things in the uh, the the heavens and the sky is supernatural. But oftentimes He's working through ordinary means. He's working through ordinary, everyday tasks that we think are not that special. We think, oh, the special work is is if you become a monk or a priest somewhere, and oh, that's the real special work. Oftentimes, God is working through in the midst of everyday work. And what you do, and it contributes to to your your livelihood and society, and you as as a person of character who are who's working very hard, and you're doing the right things, and God honors that, and He's glorified in that. I think that's important because people envy the pulpit, right? Because yeah. they think, oh, that I could work in a in a Christian environment with people um, just doing the work of the Lord all day. Well, first of all, that's a misnomer because. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, I volunteered in, in, in a church for a little bit, and my expectation before I came in was was that it was very holy, and everybody was, you know, uh, uh, walking around like they were in, in a, 
you know, monk outfit or something, and and it, and it was you know spiritual music playing all the time. And I was my eyes were wide open. It was like, oh my goodness, this is not what I expected. It's the people are human, right? You know, and and oftentimes, um, you if you think that the, the that the pinnacle is to is to be to work in a church somewhere or work in a ministry, that's okay. That's good, and God calls you that. Then great. But that doesn't mean that's the, the the pinnacle. Sometimes the pinnacle may be you're work, you have a, an ordinary job, but the people he has surround you. You think about the people he has put in your path. He has he has put in your workplace. He has providentially put those people in your sphere of influence, so to speak. Where one, your pastor has no reach to them, but you do. And you think that that ministry only happens in church on Sunday mornings, hearing a sermon, whereas sometimes church happens because of your character and your devotion to Christ, and you are a light to people in darkness, and they see that, and they're drawn to that, and they may never step foot in a church, but they observe the kind of person you are, and that is... That's church right there. Well, here's the reality, John. The secular is made holy when it is wed to the purpose of God. Mm. So so what does that mean? And, and as you said, and I'm, I'm glad you stated that, listen, it's not easy or slim pickings working in a church office right. or, or trying to work out sermon material. Um, you don't go through one kind of life and all of the parishioners go through another kind of life. Right. It, it just doesn't work that way. Right. But, but here's the reality. Um, when is supposed Christian work not so Christian? When we engage in it as work without faith. Right. But then when, in the, when is the secular not holy? when we engage in it as work without faith. Right. But when do both become holy and sanctified? Here's when it happens. When I go to my real estate office, right. trusting that God will provide. Yeah. When I go to Burger King to grill it your way, yeah. trusting that God will provide. Right. When I go to uh, work on a roof or, or, or in the field or, or as a mechanic or, or whatever kind of work you do, I can't speak intelligently to what you do, right. but you can affect how you do it. And if you do it so as to work laboriously, arduously, faithfully, under the sun with your back bent, being consistent in character, as you hope at the same time, then you had better believe that it is a holy work to which your hands I, are. I think it's interesting that Jesus worked. Committed. For 30, 30 years. 33, right. Okay, 30, mean, yeah. Right. Ministry is hard work. He, he worked. He, he, he worked in ministry as well. But before that, he's a, he's a, he's a carpenter. He's, a, you know, you know, he's, he's, working, he's working physical labor. Um, that, and I don't know. He must have had a great reputation as as a great. He must have won the employee of the year every year or something, you know. But because but, he's called the carpenter with a definite article, right? And I think of the Old Testament when when God wanted His temple built. The the people who actually had to fashion the various instruments in the in the tabernacle or the temple, or who actually had to had to saw the stuff or or not saw or or or, or mine or whatever they had to do with with the, the various each the each person that was in that was in charge of doing their their parts of the of the of building it, that was holy. 
It was indeed. In fact, does not the scripture say concerning the largest, uh, the, the architectural structure that we're given more information about in the Bible than yeah. any other, the tabernacle that God actually put his spirit on yes. and set wisdom in Ohaliab and, uh, Ohaliab yes. and Batsalel yes. so that they would be able to do what? Right. The, the the working and the design of the instruments. Right. I mean, so it was God's anointing, God's enablement, right. God's wisdom in industriousness, in hard labor. And you mean, and I think this brings up to the point that, that I think in one sense, as I'm reading the text here in, in Ruth, that Boaz was that kind of person because of the fact that he, he was a godly man of character, man of grace, man of great gracious words. He, he ran his business, so to speak, in that sense, that he was a very good person to work for. May the Lord bless you, he says to them. They didn't reply and say, oh, forget you, you know, you're, you're, you're mean to us. No, they said, hey, may the Lord bless you as well. And later on in the, in the chapter, he, he pronounced blessings on, 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 uh, on Ruth. He says, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. He is, he is that kind of you know, employer who incorporates the Lord and works by faith understanding that God is the one who is who is really the difference maker in his business so to speak you know um, it is it is working as unto the Lord whatever God has called you to do do it as unto the Lord whether it is manual labor or whether it's even if it's preaching you do it as unto the Lord you you commit it to as if it was the most important the most as if the Lord said to you I need you to do such and such and you would say, yes, Lord, I will do it with all my heart. And the difference is, is the attitude and that faith, that faith that says, this is unto God. This is God. This is, this is holy work. And I don't know how God's going to use that. Mm-hmm. But he does not, it does not, uh, God doesn't turn a blind eye to it or deaf ear to it. He sees that and uses it. In fact, you know, where I work personally, everyone in the company knows that the owner is a Christian man and he and everyone in the company wants to work in honor of the owner because they love him and they know how much he cares for each person there and there's a there's a there's a sense there's a difference in the attitude of the people that says we want every we want this this business to succeed because of the owner because he is like a boaz in Mm -hmm. one sense and there's a there's a there's a specialness about that. There's a there's you can't put your finger on it, but it's something very special. And people appreciate when a man of God is the owner and treats his people well and is very gracious to them. And they want to work even more harder or, or, or um, better for that kind of person than somebody who who demeans them and doesn't take care of them or doesn't honor them and speak well of them. There's a, there's a big difference, and God honors that, and God blesses that. Well, I, I think it's important, John. Um, oh, my, how quickly time goes by. What you see in verse number three is this phrase. And here, but, sorry, let me interrupt, but here I'm thought, I thought we would reach the end of the whole chapter. I know. I, I should have known better. <laughs> you were just a Gibor Hayel, just a noble man with noble desires and aspirations, right? In verse number three, Vayiker Mikriha. Uh, uh, or, or literally, her chance to chance yes. upon. Um, and, and, and what you see here is a formula, right? What you see here is a formula. 
Um, we, we're we're practically out of time. We're going to have to get to that formula. You're, next just, week. you're just about to uncover some. Oh my, major, that's a Pandoric box. That's that is box, right? the, Yeah. Let, let me just say to somebody really quick. I mean, as we as we have less than two minutes here. There is a housewife at home who's saying, oh, that I could get out of this place Mm. and and really be significant and efficacious. Or there is a man who goes uh, to work in the concrete jungle day in and day out dealing with executives. Or or there's a person who's maybe older or younger and their work is at a Walmart or their work is at a Burger King or a McDonald's. Or there are individuals who do janitorial work or landscaping work and they struggle to find the holy in that work. Mm. Well, listen, here's the truth. God's plan is work. That's true of Genesis 1, 2 before the fall. By the way, did you know that that's true of the new heaven and the new earth? We were intended to work. The difficulty is the thorns, the earth that fights back and and resists that. So it's not your work that's not holy. Let's try a formula this year. Let's change our whole attitude about this. Let's not only work with our backs bent, but let us bend our backs in faith. Let us bend our backs saying, this is hard. Um, this, is, this is difficult, but I commit myself to the task whilst committing myself to the Lord. And what the Lord will do is he will allow your circumstances to play out through the providential sovereign interaction of his hand. Listen. Nothing is wasted when it's done for God, by his strength, by his power, by his love, for his purpose. And so nothing that you do in 2016 will be wasted if you work hard as you trust hard in a God who will deliver good far better than you could ever imagine or ever think. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.